0: Marcus Attilius Regulus crawled into the box that had been made for him. He made himself as comfortable as he could, which wasn't very, while they nailed the top of the box shut. As they put the final nail into his box, he remembered his beloved wife Marcia and their beautiful home as he reflected on the fact that this was the last home he would ever know. This box had been constructed just for him. Sharp spikes were nailed through the bottom of the box. He had enough room to kneel. But if he were to lay down he would be skewered by the spikes so here he would kneel for the rest of his short life if he should fall asleep he was sure to be abruptly awakened by the sharp spikes skewering his skin marcus Attilius knew this was a favored method of torture for the carthaginians and he had known this was the risk he was taking but what else had there been to do he had been a very successful general in rome's war with carthage He had defeated the Carthaginian fleet and was thereafter able to land his army in Africa to march on Carthage. He inflicted a severe defeat on them at Attis as he approached Carthage. So he was very successful, that was, until he was defeated. Carthage had asked for terms after their defeat at Attis, and Marcus Atilius of course told them that his only terms would be unconditional surrender. They had refused this and marched against him a third time. This time it was he that was defeated and taken prisoner. The Carthaginians had afforded Marcus Atilius the courtesies that he would have expected to be extended to a prisoner of his rank. However, the Carthaginians had seen firsthand the power of the Roman army and had hoped not to have to continue to fight the Romans. Eventually, they granted him parole to return to Rome to negotiate a peace, or at least an exchange of prisoners, in exchange for his solemn vow to return to Carthage once his embassy was completed. Marcus Atilius had made the long journey back to Rome. He remembered with such fondness how his children ran and gathered around him, hugging and kissing him. And his reunion with Marcia was so sweet. After his long absence, to have his wife back in his arms again was heaven. Then it was time to go before the forum to address the Senate. He remembered every word of his address. It had been short and to the point. My friends and fellow Romans, it is with great regret that I address you, having been unsuccessful in my recent venture against Carthage. I don't need to remind you of the cause of our recent expedition against them. They brazenly established a military presence on Sicily. I need not tell you, my fellow Romans, if we allow these dangerous and aggressive people to continue, It will not just be Sicily they hunger for, but we will soon see them on our mainland. Ultimately, they will hunger for Rome itself. Rome did not ask for this fight, and would have done everything a peace-loving people could have done to prevent it. But we can never allow Carthage or the world to believe that Roman territory is available for others to come in and occupy at their whim. Nay, Rome must show the world that if any are impudent enough... think that they can have but a square mile of roman territory they shall pay a most severe price indeed the carthaginians have sent me here on this embassy to offer peace terms barring any understanding on terms of peace they have asked that i arrange a prison transfer so i am here passing their request on to you and have now done so now having done so i urge you in the strongest terms to reject these dishonorable proposals without debate. Rome must never give in an inch, compromise with or even negotiate with those who would attack Roman territory. Refuse these Carthaginian entreaties and send an army to finish what I have started. To do anything else would bring eternal shame to this generation of Romans. There, I have said my piece." The Senators did what he knew they would. They accepted his advice and refused to deal with Carthage. To do other would have been to bring shame to the name of Rome. Marcus Atilius came home from the Senate that day and told Marcia of the Senate's decision. Then he told her of his promise to return to Carthage. She was disconsolate. But what could he do? He had given his word of honor. He would never allow his sons to live with the shame of having a father who would not live by his word of honor. Marcia begged and begged him. Even honorable friends of his had told him that such a promise, extracted under duress, could be broken and urged him to stay. But alas, he had freely given his word. He did not have to. He must return, as he had promised. He knew that this or some similar fate likely awaited him when he got to Carthage. Yet what could he do? Such was the price of honor. He shifted his weight they had left the box out in the hot African sun. The sweat dripped off his brow and down his back. And damn it, he really had to take a leap.
1: Episode 9, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Republic. Today we look at the Roman Republic. We often hear about the Roman Empire. Today we're going to talk about what came before the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic. I've led with the true story of Marcus Atilius Regulus because I think it shows an important aspect of Roman culture under the Republic. Marcus Atilius willingly returned to Carthage, presumably knowing what was in store for him when he got there. Why? Because to fail to do so would be to break his word, and this would mean betraying one of his most fundamental values, his honor. When I was in college decades ago, I learned this story as simply a true story. And I think that today most people accept it as true, though there are some who doubt whether it actually happened. But for us, it doesn't really matter. What matters is this is a story that gained great currency during the Republic, It became a story that was told and retold with great pride by Romans. It helped them define who they were. It became the equivalent of America's story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, where he told his father, I cannot tell a lie. I did it. The important point for us is that this is a story about the kind of character that the Romans valued. Honesty with an unshakable sense of honor. We've seen culture evolve now, since the advent of agriculture, from the superstitious belief that sacrifices, sometimes human, needed to be made to assure plenty of rain for crops, victory in war, etc., to the kind of martial culture that we've seen that places value on bravery and skill in war at the apex of society's values, to the primary values of honesty and personal honor that we see in the story of Marcus Atilius Regulus. Rome was certainly not the first society that valued this kind of honor. Sparta did, but in Sparta it was mixed with a much stronger martial culture. It can also definitely be seen in the culture of Athens, as well as other cultures. It's my argument, though, and I think the literature of the Roman Republic bears this out, that it's under the Roman Republic that this kind of nothing-is-more-important-than-my-personal honor really establishes itself. Honor becomes a predominant cultural trait for the first time. Why did this value come to such prominence? My argument, like before, is that it's the power of chaos. We saw the power of chaos work under Athenian democracy and the amazing strides it brought us in the field of human thought. But Athenians were thinkers, as the Apostle Paul said after he visited Athens. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The great leap forward that chaos brought them was in the field of philosophy. Let me remind you that by chaos here, I'm of course talking about the millions of interconnected transactions that were fostered by Athenian democracy. The Romans, however, weren't great thinkers. They were great doers. So let's take a quick look into where their foray into republicanism took them. Prior to around 500 BC, most people were governed in relatively small units. Think of the Hebrews and their neighbors. There was, of course, a wide variety in the size of these city-states, or whatever kind of governing unit they might have. But the large empires like Persia were the exception until perhaps 500 years or so BC. Remember how history had developed until this point. Agriculture began in the Fertile Crescent and began outward from there. In the beginning, poor agricultural technology only provided sufficient surpluses for small towns. Ever so slowly, technologies and surpluses increased, as did people's ability to rule larger groups of people. Towns grew in size. After about 10,000 years, the Mediterranean was dotted with city-states like Athens, Sparta, and Corinth. Or small kingdoms like Israel. This was certainly the case in Italy, including the relatively small town of Rome. As we continue our whirlwind tour of Western history, we are stopping by ever so briefly at the cultures who were anomalies at the time, but who left us with a change in cultural institutions and practices that has helped to create our culture today. So we find ourselves in Rome about 509 BC, following the overthrow of a hated king. By that time, the Romans hated kings so much they decided they would never tolerate another king to rule over them. The initial years of the Roman Republic seem to have been very contentious. Surely, no one looking at those early years could have possibly predicted that this relatively small town on the Tiber River could one day rule the Mediterranean world. In the beginning, they did a lot of things wrong that didn't make a ton of headway in becoming a regional superpower. Rome's neighbors thought they were weak because they didn't have a king. Fortunately, they were successful in the first war of their republic, but they continued to have ongoing internal problems. At this point in their history, it appears that the Athenians had a far larger percentage of unfortunates at the bottom of their social pyramid who were slaves. I also think, though I haven't found proof of this, that the Athenians were far more brutal to the poor among them who attempted to demand their rights. This meant that the average Roman at the bottom of the social pyramid was much better off than his or her Athenian counterpart, the poor Athenian. However, this led to a great amount of social strife between those at the bottom, the plebeians, and the upper class, the patricians. However, there was still a great amount of social strife between those at the bottom, the plebeians, and the upper class, the patricians. This gets us to one of history's constant themes. Social conflict in a democracy or a republic is not a bad thing. It's necessary for social progress. As I write this, there is much conflict in the U.S. regarding the issue of police killing black people. I've heard a great amount of talk about the breakdown of law and order. It's true. There have been excesses committed by those who are protesting police misconduct. That's what happens during social change. It happened in the 5th century B.C. in Rome. It's happening in the streets of the U.S. today. The point is that after a social movement occurs, the society in which it occurs is, more often than not, better off for it. It's certainly not always the case. And sometimes society can end up worse off than it was before the social movement. But without this kind of social upheaval, the civil rights movement and others would never have taken place. Such movements inevitably have a chaotic nature. At any rate, this kind of unrest seems to have been taking place in Rome's early Republic. This culminated in 450 BC with the Twelve Tables. According to tradition, in 451 BC, a committee called the Decemviri was formed and tasked with composing a legal code for Rome. The purpose of these laws was to provide basic rights for the plebs and to prevent them from being taken advantage of and abused by the patricians. We don't know if this was truly the case. Nor do we know if they were successful in doing this, as the laws themselves were lost, presumably when Rome was sacked by the Gauls in 390 BC. At any rate, the Twelve Tables created the rule of law in Rome. Romans, in coming centuries, would refer to them repeatedly, also citing as a fact that all Romans were equal before the law. I don't really think that this was the case, and the patrician class certainly was often able to influence the courts. Yet this was the theory. As far as I can tell, the average Roman was certainly in better shape under the law than their contemporaries in most other societies. Rome's history following the founding of the Republic and issuance of the Twelve Tables was not initially one of empire building. Remember, there was nothing exceptional at all about the city at the time it first became a republic, except, that is, for the fact that it was a republic. This meant that there wasn't one person making all the decisions. There were elected leaders of the city that met to meet, discuss, often argue, and ultimately agree on the laws and policies of the city. It should be noted that Republican representative government in Rome, in which people elected their representatives, was not as participatory as Athenian democracy, where people were expected to participate in the governing of the city personally. Yet, decisions were made through deliberative bodies. The structure of Roman government evolved during the Republic and was quite complex, but essentially it consisted of two consuls who were elected yearly. The consuls served both as heads of government and as commanders-in-chief with the ability to decide whether to go to war. They presided over the Senate and proposed laws. Each one had the ability to veto a decision made by the other. The consuls wore the famous purple togas. The Roman Senate was made up of wealthy members of the patrician class who were unpaid and held their positions for life. They controlled the finances of the state, but, oddly, did not have any real legislative authority by themselves. Still, they were a deliberative body who advised the consuls. Given the fact that they represented the moneyed interests in Rome, and given the respect that so many individual senators commanded, the Senate was very influential under the Republic though it became less so during the later empire. Comitia Centuriata was an assembly that did have legislative power. The assembly was divided into different sections, and they voted in blocks. The sections were wealth-based, and the way it was set up, the wealthier portions of the assembly were able to outvote the plebeian assembly. Still, the plebs did have some kind of a voice, which was unusual in government during this stage of history. As far as I know, it didn't happen at all in Athens. The Comitius Centuriata had the power to elect consuls and other magistrates, enact laws, and declare war. There was also a concilium plebis that represented the plebeians. Initially, they only enacted laws that affected the plebs, but eventually they gained power to enact laws that were binding on all Romans. There were also tribal assemblies who dealt with lesser public business issues and elected numerous officials and representatives. These assemblies were divided into 35 different tribes. Tribes were based on one's ancestors. Finally, there were numerous public officials and officers that were elected for various posts. I've done my best to summarize Rome's governmental structure briefly here, but it was really quite complex. All of the complex machinations of Roman government meant that there were many thousands of men, yes, at this point they were still all men, entering into millions of meetings, conversations, and other communications attempting to influence others about the rightness of their proposed tactics, plans, and reforms. Compare this to a typical monarchy. In a monarchy, there is one person making the decisions. All the ministers and mechanisms of government are there to affect the will of the monarch. This has sometimes worked well when there is an extraordinary person as a monarch. Over time, however, it's never worked that extraordinary monarchs are found to rule states for long, probably because inevitably the crown will pass to a poor monarch at some point during the dynastic succession, and with this the state inevitably declines. In a democratic or republican form of government, however, decision-making authority is not placed into the hands of one sovereign nor does the entire apparatus of government exist to influence and enact his or her wishes. Rather, decisions are made with the input of many people. In Rome, these included the Senate, the Comitia Centuriata, the Concilium Plebis, numerous other lower assemblies, and a profusion of other consuls, magistrates, and other officials. For the Etruscans, Rome's neighbor, to pass a law, it took a king to declare the law. For Rome to pass a law, it took scores if not hundreds of men having thousands of conversations before the law passed. During this process, a law cannot progress towards being passed unless a majority of people can be convinced that it is in the best interest of the state. As the discussion and debate surrounding the law make their way through the various deliberative bodies, the shape and form of the process seems to follow the laws of chaos. Have you read James Glick's book, Chaos Yet? I'm still recommending it. All of this doesn't guarantee that any one piece of legislation will necessarily be better than a law that a monarch might make, but it seems to generally ensure that laws passed by democratic governments will, over time, be significantly better for the country than those of a monarch. There are certainly exceptions to this. I'm thinking particularly about the Russian monarch Peter the Great. He was czar of a backward and isolationist Russia from 1682 to 1725. He decided to open Russia and westernize their government and institutions. Following his reign, Russia was in a much better position financially and internationally, and peasants were much better off than they would have been under a republic, as Peter's reforms had been strongly opposed. The electorate would presumably have voted to continue Russia's isolationist policies. This is the exception, however. Nothing shows the power of chaos better than Rome. It was a very small and insignificant city in 509 BC when the Republic was founded. We've seen different states have different personalities and interests. Ancient Israel was interested in their religion, certainly after their Babylonian captivity at least. The Athenians were very interested in their intellectual and cultural life. The Persians were into empire building. Of course, the Athenians were interested in their empire, and Israelites were into expanding their landholdings at points. But these weren't their primary focuses. The Romans were observant in their religious practices and beliefs, and they enjoyed plays, poetry, and philosophy within limits. But these were not their focus. They were more like the Persians. If religious devotion was the emotion that motivated Jews during this period... It was acquisitiveness that motivated Romans. The upper-class Romans were, mostly not all, motivated to have large estates, many slaves, and much wealth. This acquisitiveness did not stop when they governed their country. Like the Persians, Roman patricians uniformly desired land and foreign provinces. As I've mentioned, Rome did not jump out of the gates as a world power after it declared itself a republic. It was a relatively small city at the time, and in fact initially found itself on the defensive and fighting for its life against the Etruscans. After that, the early history of the Republic is a history of occasional wars against local foes. Rome was successful in most of these, but not all. In 387 BC, it was sacked by the Gauls, an episode showing that Rome still had not attained the military strength that it would ultimately develop. After being thoroughly sacked, Rome rebuilt and reinforced its walls and set about to rebuilding its city and military. One of history's constants is that generations who have endured great military battles seem to be able to accomplish great things, like rebuilding a state back to a stronger condition than it was before the war. Following the sack, the Romans rebuilt the walls of the city, around all seven of Rome's hills. The Romans then focused on rebuilding their economy and their military, and soon enough, they were back fighting their neighbor Italian states again. By 272 BC, Rome had secured its dominance in central and lower Italy. So it took them about 240 years from the founding of their republic to subdue the lands surrounding them. At the time, war was different than it is now. The phrase, to the victor go the spoils, truly applied to warfare in the waning years of the BCs. It was expected that when an enemy was defeated, the victor would sack the defeated cities and take back whatever riches they could carry as their booty. Thus, by the time Rome had conquered central and southern Italy, the Romans had acquired a fair amount of wealth. Not only this, but with all the lands that had been conquered, we begin to see the great estates worked by masses of slaves that will become standard in the later empire. It's a common misconception, especially by armchair generals who love to read history books about war and watch war shows on TV, that strong militaries make for strong countries. I've never understood this. Even a cursory reading of history reveals that this isn't the case. It's strong economies that are able to sustain strong militaries during the course of long military campaigns. By this point, about halfway through the Republic, Rome had amassed enough wealth not only to pay for formidable armies, but to build ships and provision them, provide the supply lines, and carry out all the other capital-intensive things required to maintain successful military operations in foreign lands. Rome would conquer more lands in the second half of the Republic, but before there was much more conquering done, Rome would find itself at war with the other superpower in the Mediterranean, Carthage, from which our opening vignette was taken. There are three so-called Punic Wars against Carthage altogether, and Rome came very close to being defeated in the second of these by the Carthaginian Hannibal, who famously attacked the Roman army with his war elephants. The history of the Mediterranean would have been very different if Hannibal had been successful in defeating Rome. He did not, though, and Rome was ultimately successful in the third of these wars and by that point the Romans were so mad at Carthage, not only did they completely raise the entire city to the ground, but they sowed the land with salt so that it could never grow crops to support another town. Following the Punic Wars, there was again some social strife Rome had to take care of before they could get back to empire building. There's been much talk in recent years about what President Reagan termed trickle-down economics. The idea, of course, being that if the rich just get richer— then the economy will improve, and people at the bottom of the income spectrum will improve their lot too. One has only to look at ancient Rome to tell that this isn't the case. There was fantastic wealth at the top of Roman society, yet the plebs continued to be extremely poor. This disparity between the rich and the poor led to the election of two brothers, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, who were politicians elected by the plebs. Both worked very hard for land reform to allow those at the bottom of the social period to share in Rome's wealth. Such reform would mean that Rome's patrician class would have to give up some of their land or forego the acquisition of future land as Rome conquered more territory. This set up an epic struggle between the patricians and the plebeians in Rome. We don't have time to go into it here, but both the Punic Wars and the tribunates of the brothers Gracchus Are very worth some reading on your own. Spoiler alert, it didn't go well for the brothers. The Senate was too strong and their opposition to land reform too intense. Both Tiberius and Gaius were killed. Actually, Gaius committed suicide when it became obvious that he was about to be killed. Another part of the history of the Roman Republic concerns what is known as the Social War. By the end of the Republic period, The states in Italy that Rome had conquered had considered themselves Roman for some time. They were called the Sociae, and by this time they had fought alongside Rome in several wars. Now they rebelled and demanded citizenship or independence. After fighting with them for a couple years, Rome granted citizenship, at least to those who were not the worst of the rebels. Now everyone was happy enough to go home. The First War with Carthage occurred in 264 B.C., and the Social War was over in 89 B.C. During this turmoil, Rome was still expanding its borders. Beginning in about 215 B.C., Rome fought a series of engagements in Greek and Macedonia. They could only pursue these sporadically because of the Punic Wars, but eventually both Greek and Macedonia were defeated and put under Roman control by around 150 B.C. The Romans were also busy in various engagements in Spain during this time. But by the end of the social war, Rome had great wealth and had defeated its most dangerous enemy, and it was finished with the social upheaval. It was finally ready for some serious empire building. Thanks largely to the generalship of Julius Caesar and Pompey, Rome soon conquered Gaul, now called France, Armenia, Syria, Egypt, and Palestine, that is, ancient Israel, as well as other lands. Of these, I think Egypt would end up being the most important for Rome, as the rich farmland in the Nile Delta would go far towards feeding the ever-increasing population of Rome in the coming centuries. We began this episode with the story of Marcus Atilius Regulus and the Carthaginians to show the overwhelming importance of virtue, and in particular, honor in the early Roman Republic. Sources show a marked change in the place of virtue in the average Roman's life and in public morals by the end of the Republic. Divorce, which was rare during the early and middle Republic, was common by the end. The Roman Republic ended in 27 BC when Augustus Caesar assumed the position of emperor of Rome, coming in episode 12. It would only be a relatively few years later that the Emperor Tiberius would have to ban kissing due to an extreme epidemic of oral herpes. We've seen the incessant political unrest at the bottom of the social order caused by excessive poverty of the plebs. A deep understanding of the social history of Rome during the last 50 years of the Republic is difficult, as Roman authors almost always wrote about Roman upper classes. Yet books written by later Roman authors, such as Livy and especially Juvenal, seemed to indicate a Rome in which the social values were in serious decline compared to the Rome of Regulus. Another trend was also occurring at this time that would help bring an end to the Roman Republic. By this time, sufficient wealth had accumulated in the hands of a very few, such that a small number of super-rich patricians were able to raise their own armies, as opposed to leading armies raised by the state. These armies were loyal to their self-made generals. Some of the writings lead me to believe that some of the followers of the generals like Caesar verged on hero worship. With their wealth, they were able to buy the loyalty of enough prominent Romans that consulships in the late Republic had everything to do with military power and money and little or nothing to do with who the voters thought would make the best consuls. With all these factors in play, Julius Caesar was on his way back to Rome from conquering Gaul. He knew that he would be facing severe political opposition when he returned to Rome. He also knew that if he brought his army with him, no one could dare oppose him. There is a Roman law that no one could bring an army further south than the Rubicon River that flowed in northern Italy. On january tenth, 49 BC, Caesar sat with his army on the northern bank of the Rubicon. At one point, any upper-crust Roman like Regulus would have been fiercely loyal to the Roman state. Breaking the law and marching an army on Rome would have been unthinkable to any Roman statesman in Regulus' day. It wasn't to Caesar. With the words, let the die be cast, Caesar led his troops across the Rubicon and to Rome. The position dictator was a position that had existed in Rome since the early Republic. It was a position that was filled from time to time during periods of war, It was always a temporary position. However, in 44 B.C., Caesar was appointed dictator for life. Many in the Senate felt they couldn't stop him, but some did. On the Ides of March, 44 B.C., Caesar was stabbed to death by 60 conspirators, led by his good friend Marcus Junius Brutus. Sadly for the conspirators, their assassination could do nothing to stop the dissolution of the Republic that had lost the values that it had been founded on. We'll pick up from here with episode 12 on the Roman Empire. But first, we'll need to take another trip to the Holy Land to see what's happening there at this time. Our read this week is Cicero, Selected Works, translated by Michael Grant. Okay, you may have a little difficulty getting through all of it. It's not bad at all, or difficult to understand. It's just a lot of moralizing in one book. You might want to take it in smaller chunks. If you don't make it all the way through, that's fine. You'll get the idea by the time you're halfway through or so. I just think it's good to understand the mindset of a patriotic Roman during the Republic. Actually, Cicero was a Roman statesman at the end of the Republic, but he had the old values. His attitude was typical of any Roman during the first half of the Republic. They didn't serve him well at a time when other patricians no longer held his values. He ultimately was sentenced to death by those who did not share in his kind of patriotism. The story is a very good one, and a biography of Cicero is far more interesting than his own writings which gets to my point. There's so much fascinating history that we've had to pass over entirely today, or just pass by at 30,000 feet, that I encourage you to read anything on the Roman Republic. And just so I won't have to repeat myself, the same is even more true about the Roman Empire. See you next time.